Come to me, O Lord. I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your laws forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands because I love them. I lift them, I lift up my hands to your commands which I love. I meditate on your decrees. Hey, that was great stuff. Let's see, I got a few prayer requests. I got a lot, but I'm just going to mention a couple. Uh, let's see here. Uh, uh, listen, I, one thing, I'm, this isn't kind of a prayer request as much as it's uh, change.org has a petition on it right now for a six-year-old to be saved from chemical castration. I posted it on Facebook, but yeah, um, it, yeah, a mother wants to have the child converted, the father doesn't. And so if you want the link to that, email me and I will uh, get that to you so that you can sign that petition. They need a certain number of signatures before it can go into some something and uh no they yeah, admitted i'd do more than that to her yeah um and then we have um graham in scotland sends his thanks to everybody that's been praying for him because he's he's better he's out uh, doing okay but he still has a ways to go and he needs to remain in people's prayer but he did want me to personally thank everybody and then um, my friend Paul, the guy that did the uh, music for us, I mentioned him last week, mm -hmm. he is in the hospital surgery right now. He's got a bad appendix and an oh, abscess. Mm -hmm. And then they found a mass on his colon, which oh. is being removed when I was uh, emailed the, the, his wife, Amy, about uh, two hours ago. And then they're going to test it for cancer. And if that, that is, then they're going to have to go into other things. But that's his status right now. And then uh, Lisa, in, I heard from her today in uh, Australia, uh, her stepdad that we were praying for is uh, getting better. He may be out of the hospital and into a care facility. And the daughter uh, needs some prayer. She busted up her leg, but uh, uh, she's not going to need surgery, I think is what she said. I'm tired right now. I just kind of woke up from a nap, actually. Bert woke me up from it. But uh, anyway, stepdad and daughter... Um, they're they're okay, but they could use some prayer. And then Elise, who I've mentioned before, who got off of drugs, has had some setbacks. That's all I heard is just setbacks. So we need to have her in prayer to make the right decisions in life and to keep her eyes on Jesus. So those are some prayer requests, and we'll do those right now. Heavenly Father, you've heard those, and you know all the others that have come in or that are on people's hearts here or that are online whenever, 10 years from now, if somebody watches this video, and they have something on their heart, respond according to your wisdom and be with your people, oh Lord. You're outside of time and uh, our prayers now are, are good for eternity in your eyes. So we would pray that these things would be uh, responded to, to by you and that your healing hand would be upon people, your hand of uh, uh, finances, somebody that needs a car right now. And uh, we would pray for that individual. And we just have all kinds of things that are hindering us from giving you our full attention because we get mentally distracted by these things. So uh, please uh, be with those people and uh, and their needs. And also we ask that uh, this Bible study would be properly handled and we wouldn't deviate from your word into unsound theology. And Lord, we thank you for the chance to be here and to fellowship with this wonderful congregation. And Lord, we're grateful for it. And we just thank you for it. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
And then finally, it's not a prayer request, it's just I went and visited Miss Magnuson today and she looked wonderful. So yeah, really, really great stuff. And um, I'll go ahead and read, today is the 14th of March, we'll read that. It all began at a tea party in 1856 in Ulster, Ireland. James McQuilkin was invited to tea. There, a visiting woman skirted the civilities of discussing the weather and spoke openly on a subject McQuilkin found uncomfortable, the condition of the soul. After another guest at the tea party described the nature of her Christian experience, the visitor said, my dear, I don't believe you have ever known the Lord Jesus. McQuilkin later wrote, I knew that she what i knew that she spoke what was true of me i felt as if the ground were about to open beneath me and let me sink into hell sounds like sermon from a week ago as soon as uh, i could i left the company for two weeks i had no peace day or night at the end of that time i found peace by trusting the lord jesus the following year mcquilkin felt burdened to pray for his neighbors he asked three friends to join him once a week the four men gathered at the at the uh, village schoolhouse to pray for each person in the community by name. The town was Ahogill County, Antrim, Ulster, Ireland. The date, September 1857. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to them, God was laying the same burden on many hearts, and similar prayer groups started throughout Northern Ireland. Pastors began preaching about revival. In December 1857, McQuilkin's group rejoiced to see the first conversion in Ahogill, but widespread revival did not come. Still, God's people prayed for 19 more months. Then one morning in the city of Ballymena, just six miles from Ahogil, a young man fell prostrate in the crowded marketplace and called out, unclean, unclean, God be merciful to me, a sinner. The night of March 14, 1859, the McQuilkin group responded by inviting Christians to prayer, a prayer meeting at the Ahogil Presbyterian Church. The church was so crowded that they moved the meeting out into the street. There, hundreds of people knelt in the mud and rain, confessing their sins and praising God. They were the first of 100,000 people God called to himself in 1859 in what became known as the Ulster Revival. There was a great spiritual movement among young people. It was not uncommon for teenage boys to hold street meetings to reach their peers for Christ. At one such street meeting, an Irish clergyman counted 40 children and 80 adults listening to the preaching of 12-year-old boys. The results of the revival were remarkable. In 1860, the county, in County Antrim, the police had an empty jail and no crimes to investigate. Judges often had no cases to hear. With their owners converted, pubs closed and alcohol consumption fell so drastically that whiskey distillers were sold. Distilleries were sold. Gambling at Horse races fell by 95%. A visitor to Ulster reported thronged church services, abundant prayer meetings, increased family prayers, unmatched scripture reading, increased giving, converts, converts remaining steadfast. The Ulster movement touched off similar revivals in England, Scotland, and Wales. God drew hundreds of thousands of people to himself, and it all began with a woman unafraid to speak spiritual truth over tea. And they ask or they say, we never know what will be the effect of our conversion with others. The woman at the tea had no idea that God was using her to launch a nationwide revival. Our responsibility is to faithfully share God's truths as we go about our daily lives and leave the results to him. Psalm 49 and 10 says, I have not been afraid to speak out as you, O Lord, well know. I have not kept this good news hidden in my heart. I have talked about your faithfulness 
and saving power. Great stuff. It'd be nice if that happened here. Mm -hmm. Okay, here we go. We got uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 5 is where we're starting today. Wherever you want. Six one. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do, not, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore. If you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. Five. I say this to shame you. It is possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. Hmm. Is that different? No, that's a little different. I say to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even who will be able to judge between his brethren? So it's very close. But I was in Romans 6, trying to find out where you were. <laughs> finally, I realized I haven't turned the number of pages I need to turn yet. That's why I was a little off. Um, yeah, anyway, here we go. Let's see here. Can I, can I yeah, sure. You said Romans. Today I was looking through your list of all the errors that are in the King James Version, and Romans is not in there. No, well, that's because I wasn't looking for him then. Okay, okay, yeah, okay. but Hebrews, I found, um, you know, I would, I've got it somewhere. I think it's in the coming sermon. I have 21 in one, one chapter of Numbers, just in one chapter. And wow. uh, in Hebrews, I probably have 150, 200 or so. And I haven't really gone deeply in it. It's just things that are obviously wrong. I mean, really errors. These aren't just... Uh, uh, you know, oh, if somebody has a translational difference and it's translator's preference, I leave it alone, even if I disagree with it. But if it's really an error, I highlight it. And I'm telling you what, I've, I've come to the conclusion that the King James Version is not just a marginal translation. It's a poor translation. The people say it's the only inspired version. They have no idea. They have no idea what they're talking about. What's that? Oh, yeah, the committee themselves admitted it. Right in their, their original preface. They will do that sometime. I'll, I'll pull that out and we'll do that. Maybe during Corinthians as a uh, uh, just review what their comments are on scriptural interpretation and where error lies and all that. Because everything that the King James crowd says, they've already refuted their own original preface. But, yeah, it, it is not a good translation. I, I would not even recommend that people use it other than just for reading, well, you know. To, to be fair to the committee, you know, there should be thrown in just so you can look sure. at, the, at the breadth of, of all the translations. That Absolutely. The whole thing. You but, bet. So. But Robert Young's is probably the closest that I've come across. It does have, it's hard to read, and it does have uh, some things that I disagree with. But I've found very few, very few. There, He is really spot on. But it's very hard to read because he's going literally, and it makes it, uh, it makes it rather difficult to follow. But anyway, here we go. 6-5. The irony abounds. Paul has been speaking to those in Corinth who would allow believers within the congregation to carry out lawsuits against one another in pagan tribunals. His words have shown that it is not only inappropriate, but it makes no sense based on their positions in Christ. He now says, I say this to your shame. They have disgraced themselves over this matter, and his words anticipated them feeling the disgrace because of it. And then comes the ironic question. 
Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? It is to this group that he has now written five full chapters of doctrine based on their divisions of allegiance. Remember, that's the whole premise of so far. Everything he's been talking about has been divisions within the church, divisions of allegiance. In chapter 4, he said to them, let me read you what it said there in verse 410. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. How can it be that they are wise in Christ, and yet they cannot make simple decisions concerning matters of dispute between believers? It is a scathing rebuke on the wisdom they feel they possess when in fact they are demonstrating none at all. His letter is intended for them to think these things through. Line after line is one which asks them, and thus us, to consider rationally our position in Christ and then to act in a manner according to that high status. But it is so much easier to watch a movie or to sit in the lawn and gaze at birds as they flit about, isn't it? This book is our guide. It is our constitution for living, and it is that which reveals our Lord. We should pick it up, we should read it, and we should cherish its words each day. How can you know unless you know, right? It's just not possible. And then to study it continuously, day after day, to listen. I'm so enjoying, I'm uh, two kings somewhere today, and uh, Naaman the Assyrian just came down and got cleansed uh, as I was driving in here. And second lap? Yo, second lap. And I'm telling you, I, it's better the second time than it was the first. And I can't wait to get to the New Testament, Testament and hear Paul's epistles and then start again. I just, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. So um, life application. When someone says there are many ways to interpret the Bible, they're indicating that man holds sway over what God intends. In fact, there is one proper way to evaluate the Bible, but every one of us fails to do so to some degree or another. Our failure in no way negates what God determines. It shows that we need to study more. Anytime somebody says that to you, tell them that is untrue. Is God waffling? No. Is he giving us a different message today than he gave us the day the Bible was penned? No. There's one way to properly interpret the Bible, and there are lots of ways to mishandle it. And, you know, one of the things I was sent a video that I, I'm working on, uh, this guy sent it to me, and I said, I'm not going to watch it because it's more than 20 minutes long. But I decided I'll watch five minutes at a time, and I'm, I'm going to do a little presentation for the church here. But um, what did the guy immediately start out with? A chart that says, rightly dividing the word of God. Everybody uses that. Nobody would use that verse and say, now I'm going to not rightly divide the word of God. Okay, so everybody claims they are rightly dividing the word of God. That's the silliest thing in the world is to bring that up at the beginning of your sermon, unless you are not feeling that you are uh, possibly rightly dividing the word of God. In other words, you were setting up in advance, I'm doing this, and so you don't need to worry about it. What I say, you just hold on to. But to me, that's the silliest verse in the world is to start your sermon with saying, we're now going to rightly divide the word of God. How stupid. Because everybody thinks they are. Jehovah's Witnesses think they are rightly dividing the Word of God. So why would you start your argument with that? Okay? Anyway, it says to do it, but that's not something that we should be claiming that we're doing. Okay? That's why I say when I pray, I say, Lord, I pray that we're rightly dividing. Right? right. I'm not making the claim that I am because for me to do that would be the epitome of arrogance. Because 
everybody thinks they're rightly dividing the word of God. But we'll go on from there. Um, six, six. But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. Okay, even before my comments, I had somebody email me and said that they have a, uh, a family matter. I won't go any deeper than that. That needs to be resolved based on inheritances. Okay, and he said, "What do you think I should do?" And I said, "Well, it depends. If he's a Christian, you got to let it go. That's it. Now, if he." claims to be a Christian because for my whole life I claimed to be a Christian, right? I was raised in a Christian family. I go overseas and I tell everybody I'm a Christian because it comes with the the family name. Mm -hmm. Christianity is not congenital. It comes through the heart. It doesn't come through, uh, you know, your lineage and who you are. So um, I said, if somebody just says they're a Christian just because and they're not, I wouldn't even worry about that. But the idea is to never bring disgrace on Christ's name. That's the main thing. Okay. Um, but I said, you know, if this person doesn't claim to be a Christian, you have every right to take your case before the courts. That's the way it is. And then there are certain things that necessitate that. I mean, if you get in an accident, that's something that's handled outside of those anyway. You have insurance, he has insurance, that's why we do these things, or he should have insurance. But, you know, we, we need to be careful evaluating that. But at the same time, uh, if you want to hold right to the Bible, a Christian who is a believer in a congregation with another believer should never take that person to court. He, and he's going to explain why here, and we'll get to that, but it just came to mind right before we even evaluate this. In the previous verse, Paul asked this question, I say this to your shame, is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? Verse 6-6 six, six is not a continuation of the question, but rather a reply to it. It is a rebuke that there is not a wise man among you, not even one Instead of displaying wisdom, which will someday be used to even judge the angels, he notes that brother goes to law against brother. Instead of this, they should be willing to sit down and responsibly work out their differences among each other, not even involving the church for mediation. Rather than this, though, they not only failed to settle their differences, they were skipping right over the church for mediation and going directly to civil trial where judgment was rendered before unbelievers. It was an utter failing of their position in Christ and the knowledge, fraternity, and faith that they should have exhibited. Albert Barnes, I love the guy, notes that according to Flavius Josephus, the Romans who were now masters of Corinth permitted the Jews in foreign countries to decide private affairs, where nothing capital was in question among themselves. How could it be that if they had this right that they wouldn't exercise it? They were considered a sect of Judaism at this time, and uh, we can see the dispute which arises in Acts chapter 18, and the judgment rendered by the proconsul in Acts 18.14 concerning this, and so they had the legal right to mediate many such private affairs. Remembering that 1 Corinthians is included in the Bible, it is a prescriptive letter from Paul explaining our responsibilities within the church during the church age. We should consider how to act in similar matters based on his words here and abide by them. Life application. Of what true value is it to gain the upper hand in petty matters which arise between believers that we would violate the words of Scripture in order to bring suit against our brethren in the church? Looking at these things from the eternal perspective, it is better to let go of such offenses than it is to bring discredit upon ourselves as believers and, more importantly, the name of Jesus, right? Six, seven. The very fact that you have lawsuits among 
you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be wronged? You've been wronged by somebody? Let it go. You've been wronged? Why not be wronged? That's what he's saying. Go ahead. Uh, why not rather be cheated? There you Instead, go. Instead, you yourselves... Now you're into verse 8. That's okay. It's probably broken up differently than this one, so sometimes the verses do. Anyway, um, I'll read it again. Just It's a little different, but not much. Uh, 7. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Utter failure is well translated here. Paul is telling those in Corinth that their lawsuits against one another demonstrate that they have, <coughs> excuse me, mixed, missed the mark in Christian fellowship <coughs> and in maintaining a sense of fraternity within the faith. It is true that when one sues another, it is generally because a wrong has been committed. Suppose someone lends $5,000 to another believer. When it isn't paid back, the normal and expected course of action would be to go to them and attempt to get the money back. When that fails, a suit might be the next logical step to follow. However, Paul is saying that doing this is contrary to what should be expected of a Christian, especially if the suit is conducted in non-Christian mediation. I will, before giving any more comments, say that you should never lend anything that you expect back. If you lend somebody, you should figure this money is gone. That is That would be the best policy ever. So when they don't pay you back, which is the common standard in most relationships, I'm talking about not going through a bank and signing something. I'm talking about lending somebody that you know money or somebody in your congregation money, and they say, I'll pay you back at this time. You should never expect that back because all it's going to do is engender bitterness in you. If you give it, saying, I would like to be paid back, and they don't, and you expect that it doesn't happen, then you'll be on the upper hand before you do it, okay? That's my recommendation to everybody here. Paul says that instead, why do you not rather accept wrong? And then to further that word, he repeats the thought to confirm what he meant. Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? It seems contrary to the normal order of business because it is contrary to the normal order of business. Something more noble is expected of those within the faith. He's a loser. He's proven it in, that he's a loser within the congregation. Why would you stoop to his level is what Paul is trying to tell you right there. This guy claims to be a Christian. He claims to be a uh, you know faithful Christian, and he's not going to pay you back. What good are you going to do by serving making him pay you back other than to get the upper hand on something you shouldn't have given if you couldn't afford it in the first place? Okay. We may suffer from being cheated, but God is not unaware of it. Our faithfulness to his precept will be rewarded in due time. I spent some time with a friend over the past week, you know that, and this person faithfully said, she asked questions, what do I do about this? What do I do about that? I have somebody in my family that, this and that, and everything was directed to obedience to the word of God. I know I can't do that because I'm a woman and I'm not allowed to do that was her statement to me, not me saying it to her. This is a person that wants to be obedient, even understanding that it may be that she would be a help in the short term. She would be dishonoring the Lord in the long term because the Bible says, don't do this particular thing. And to me, that in itself is enough for many, many rewards is when you were saying, I really want to do this. I really want to put this out. 
then I don't do it because I'm going to honor the Lord with it. The same principle follows true with what Paul is talking about here. Okay, I'll read that again. We may suffer from being cheated, but God is not unaware of it. Our faithfulness to his precept will be rewarded in due time. He will handle all wrongs and correct all offenses, either in this life or in the true life, which is to come. But he is asking us to stand on the principles he has laid down. This is his word. There's one way to interpret it. There's not different ways of looking at this issue. Although people will interpret it differently, that doesn't mean that they are doing it properly. There's always one way that God intends for his word to be handled. Now, having said that, there are different things that you can get out of God's word. We've talked about this before. It's called the quadriga. You go into the Old Testament and you're looking at something. There is usually a prophetic meaning to what you're reading. There's also a pictorial meaning to what you're reading. There's also a literal historical aspect of what you're reading. And then there is one more. What would be the fourth? A prophetic, a pictorial, a literal, and a, almost all sermons are based on it. Begins with M and ends with oral. A moral application. That's the quadriga. You've got four applications for every verse. That's not saying you're interpreting differently. You're looking at what God has done, and he's packaged a lot of information into a very small amount of I mean, it's a big book, but it's a small amount of information considering that it covers 1,600 years of history. And sometimes it's got a story about somebody that's bald that does something and you think, why did he include that, right? Or you got all these stories that seem obscure. God is giving you that for a real reason. It's not just arbitrarily putting it in there. He's always trying to tell us something, okay? But there's one interpretation which is proper doctrine-wise, okay? So... He is laid down. Having noticed that, noted this, the passage makes no commentary on interactions with non-believers, governmental agencies, corporations, or the like. When harm is suffered at the hands of a non-believer, there are venues for handling such things. Life application, how difficult it can be to set aside grievances that have been levied against us by other believers. But how much more satisfying should it be to know that we are following the wishes of the Lord by doing so? Let us stand firmly on God's word and not be weakened in our determination to be obedient to the knowledge we possess, mixing in practice to what we have learned. Boy, if everybody did that, we would be in very good shape. Lord, my brother has offended me, but you have said that I should let it go. Is it not better that I be wronged than to take him to court for all the world to know? Surely the offense has, up, has me upset, as you can see. But in the end, your word is my rule and guide. Should I consider my offense more important? Should I so lift myself up and be filled with pride? Rather, I will stand upon my guide, your written, written word, and thus be obedient to you, my precious Lord. 6-8. Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Oh boy. This verse should be looked at in connection with the previous verse for a full understanding of what Paul is relaying. And so we're going to do that. That was verse 8. So we're going to read, Now therefore it is, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. He had just asked them, why wouldn't they accept wrong and even be cheated instead of going to law against one another? In his written words, it is as if he were speaking without giving them time to even explain themselves because their actions were 
inexcusable. And so he continues with the same thought, stating a fact that they cannot ignore. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. They are in essence caught with their hands in the cookie jar. He has identified openly that their actions are harmful and wrong towards one another. There is a root of bitterness between the believers which has been allowed to enter into the congregation. It is something that is warned against in Hebrews 12. Let me read that to you. 12. Hebrews 12. And where am I here, Charlie? It's uh, 14 and 15. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. The, this root of bitterness is explicitly stated by Paul as well in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me read that to you. They're such small books, you pass right over them three times. There we go, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 6. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. Do not take advantage and defraud your brother. The fact, oh, uh, here, uh, yes, the fact that you were cheating and doing wrong is bad enough. But what is more vile to him is that you do these things to your brethren. If this is how they were treating one another, then how much more disgraceful must their actions to those who weren't considered as brothers? It is the Lord Jesus they represent. And yet, because of the things they were doing, those outside the church would certainly be inclined to say, I want no part of that religion. Now, I understand it's an excuse. Mahatma Gandhi, I think it was, that said, um, I would love to be a Christian if it wasn't for the actions of the Christians, right? In other words, it's a noble religion, but that's a horrible excuse. If something is truth, it is true, regardless of how badly people handle it and operate among themselves. And yet, at the same time, we do set an example what other people are going to look at. And they're either going to say, I want to know more about that or not. Then people get, I, I don't know. It just, we just have to act properly. We need to live out our lives in accord with the way that the word says, not just in church, but among other people as well. Because eventually all we're going to do is scare people away. But at the same time, we want to call immorality immorality we want to hold a stand against people that are wicked right if you read the psalms there are uh, how many psalms are there there's 150 that's right how many of them are psalms of imprecation no there's a lot of them there's it's like more than half of them i mean if you read them somewhere in that psalm there is somebody calling down a curse on somebody or asking to break their teeth in their mouth oh lord or on and on and on okay that is, it's, you know, the Psalms are what type of literature? Well, they're poetry, but it, there's a specific type of literature. What? Wisdom. Very good. You get a Maserati. Okay. So um, we have, um, uh, can anybody name the books of wisdom? Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and one comes before Psalms. Job, yes. Okay, so you got the five books of wisdom. And then in the New Testament, there's one that borders on wisdom, which is the book of James. Okay, it's not a wisdom book, but it kind of has the same taste to it. When you read the Psalms and when you read the Proverbs, 
it's not prescribing anything, okay? But it is giving you good guidelines to live by. If you live by these, these general pre precepts, your life will be better off, most likely. Now, people will take the Proverbs and they will stick them into their life and they'll say, well, things aren't going well the way the Proverbs say. Well, that's because it's wisdom. It generally means that you will live well. Some people get cancer and they might follow the Psalms perfectly, right? Or the Proverbs, okay? They live out Ecclesiastes and they say, Solomon said to do this and things aren't working out. That's, it is not prescriptive. It is a wisdom literature to say, if you follow these guidelines, things will probably go well. But there are no guarantees in life. You can have two people that start out at the same level, making exactly the same pay. They start with nothing in their pockets. And this guy has nothing but bad fortune every day. And he has nothing at the end of the, his life. And this guy started out in the exact same position with the same capabilities, the same schooling, everything. And he dies with 400 grandchildren, billions of dollars in the bank. Life isn't fair. They both held to the same biblical principles and one was blessed and one wasn't. But if they held to those same biblical principles, the Lord will reward them both at the end of their life, okay? But the general taste of the books of wisdom are that if you apply these precepts to your life, things will go well. That's general, okay? Don't want to make the mistake that I'm being obedient to what it says here and I'm going to prosper. That's false, okay? Anyway, um, so uh, let's see here. The fact that, uh, where was I? I think, yeah. The fact that they were cheating and doing wrong is bad enough, but what is more vile to him is that you do these things to your brethren. If this is how they were treating one another, then how much more disgraceful must be their actions to those who weren't considered as brothers? It is the Lord Jesus that they represent. And yet, because of the things they were doing, those outside the church would certainly be inclined to say, I want no part of that religion. I know I read that and wanted to say it again. Life application. Would you apply for a job in a company that was known for employees cheating one another and suing one another? Would you willingly join such a company knowing in advance that there was nothing but infighting and division? Of course not. If this is the case with work, how much more do you think people will reject coming to Christ if they go into a church and see nothing but the same between believers? Our actions in church have real significance to the eyes of those who come in seeking answers to their questions about the Lord. Before I go, yes. Um, what's interesting is that... Uh, Speak louder so they can Linda hear. Linda and I came to Christ at the same time. Right. We went to the same church, went to the same Bible study group, and... And something was always said back then, which I was going to repeat. And I said, ah, I'm not going to say anything. Until she just leaned over to me and she goes, you mean to say you can sue non-Christians? Absolutely. And, but that's, it, it was like, you know, if you're a Christian, you should never sue anybody. Yeah, that's what I, I remember hearing. And I'm well, like, what? Yeah, well, well, that's the same as the fabled, the fabled thing that you hear among Christians all the time. You must, begins with four. Ends with give. Everyone. You must forgive everybody. Oh, oh, oh. That is one of the most damaging yeah. instructions that yeah. is out there in Christianity. You have to forgive everybody. Right. Listen, that is absolute nonsense. Now, you can say, I potentially forgive everybody. But you can't actually forgive. Some people don't even think they've done an offense. So there's no way to forgive them. But if you were required to forgive everybody unconditionally, you would be what's called a punching bag. And secondly, you would be putting yourself to a higher, the Lord would be putting you to a higher standard than he puts on himself because he does not forgive everybody unconditionally. He forgives everybody potentially. And when they come to Jesus Christ, he forgives them actually. But until then, the offer is made, but they are not forgiven. 
And that is very important to understand. Yes. There's a lot of quotes in the Bible on it's time to take up the defense. That's right. They're all, all through the Bible. You defend yourself. You take action. That's right. But that is one of the most damaging teachings in Scripture or that people say is in Scripture is you have to forgive everybody. That is never said in the Bible. I've got a great paper on it. If anybody is sitting there stewing right now and they say, I disagree with that, email me and I'll email it to you. I'll give you that information so that you understand all of the verses in context, because there is not one verse in context in the Bible that says you must forgive everybody. You know, Jesus forgave everybody at the cross, didn't he? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In other words, if they know what they're doing, I could go on with all of them. Okay. What does it say? Uh, forgiving everyone just as God in Christ forgave you. Well, how did God in Christ forgive us? We came to him asking for forgiveness, okay, as God in Christ forgave you. So we're not required to forgive everybody if you take them in context. If you want the, the document, I will email it to you. I'm not going to argue with you over it. You're wrong if you disagree, okay? <laughs> there now, there's no doubt because that is not a tenet that is found in Scripture right. anywhere, okay? Yeah, but, really yeah. When you don't forgive somebody else, you're hurting yourself. No, that 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 is also misunderstood. People say that all the time. Well, I mean, you you let something go does not mean you've forgiven somebody. There's that's, a difference. You true. let something yeah. go. But to say, I am going to forgive somebody is impossible if they don't feel that they've done you wrong. As a matter of fact, they'll probably come and do the same thing to you again. Okay? It is impossible to forgive some people. It's just not possible. Now, you can walk up to him like, uh, you know, we'll say the, the guy that went up to his jailer and he says, you know, I forgive you for what you did. Okay. And that might have an effect on him and it might not. Okay. But actually, he's not forgiven until he receives that. It's impossible. You cannot forgive somebody until it's received. Okay. You can potentially forgive somebody. It's only actually when it's received. Okay. But anyway, scripture does not teach you that you must forgive all people. Anyway, I didn't mean to get off on that diversion, but you started with whatever you just said. So, or Linda started. Yeah. Anyway, but I agree. I agree. You do not want to carry bitterness in you. You don't want to lug that around. That is poison to the human soul is to carry bitterness. But you know what you do? If somebody has offended you, you say, Lord, I'm giving this to you. Let the Lord have it. He's got big shoulders. I tell you what, they're, they're big shoulders. He can handle your burden. All right, let's go on. Um, six, it, was it was Eve's fault, right? Yeah, she did it. It was. You know what that was called? Kicking the can down the road because he said she did it, and then she said he did it down to the the devil. All right. Uh -huh. So, anyways, kicking the can down the road. Go ahead, six nine. The very fact that you have lawsuits amongst you means you have been completely defeated already. I already did that. Where yes. Word nine. nine. Word nine. I'm sorry. The next paragraph down. <laughs> Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers nor male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders. Okay, why don't you read 10 too, just so we have nor the thought. thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Asian trade right down the road here, right next to the Thai restaurant. That was my store and that was theirs, my business partners, right? Okay, that's now they've expanded into both, but one side was mine and one side was theirs. And one day some people came in and said, we'd like to talk to you about Jesus. And I said, okay. And unfortunately they were the Jehovah's Witnesses, so their theology was completely wrong and I was gone from there very quickly. But he said something and I said, oh, 
that's not in the Bible. And he's, he knew enough to say, well, go to 1 Corinthians 6. And I did. And those two verses right there changed my entire life. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Okay. Paul is going to make a sobering list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He makes a statement in the form of a rhetorical question, and it has the full force of a positive declaration that these people will, in fact, not inherit the kingdom of God. Because everybody says, oh, I'm going to heaven. Uh, you know, you ask them, Are you, what's going to happen to you when you die? I don't know. I'll probably go to heaven. Why? Well, I'm not as bad as that guy. And you get all these, this is Charlie Garrett's confused thinking, you know, standing in my store down there. And I looked at that and I said, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I spent the next three months crying. Going to church with tears streaming down my eyes. I turn on Christian radio and hear the music and I drive and I'd have to pull over and stop. I was so broken. But I'll tell you what, when I realized what the Lord did for me, and this is true. Uh, Mary, remember Mary, little old Mary that came with you guys from, yeah, she said the same thing. I said, after I realized what Christ did for me, it was like a pall had been lifted from my eyes. I literally had never seen the trees green before. I'd never seen the, the sky blue. It was like everything radiated. I couldn't believe the difference because I was just in this, this Paul, it, yeah, self-centered. I had no idea what the world around me looked like at all. And she said, that's exactly what happened to me. I walked outside and everything was green and blue and beautiful. And I'd watch every single thing that came on the TV, TBN, no matter how bad it was. I just wanted to know what people had to say about this word. I was reading it. The next day after they walked in, I started reading this 10 hours a day when somebody would come to the store and I'd hear that bing bong that you hear at 7-Eleven. I had one of those. I'd be like, I don't want them in here. I just want to know what this says. And I did that for two years every day, 10 hours a day. When I get home, he'd go, no, I'd be sitting on the couch reading the Bible. And if something was on TV, I'd turn it on and watch it. I didn't care how bad it was. I just wanted to know what they had to say. And I, I was able to process things that way. Hal Lindsey did a great job of always giving the gospel at the end of his uh, talk every week. You know, he, and he always said the same thing. I, the Lord has purchased a pardon for you. He used that same term every time. And uh, those three months that I was just so elated, and I, I still am to this day, but those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God was enough to stop my heart completely. I couldn't see, I couldn't breathe. When they left, I could not breathe, thinking, I've always thought I was a good guy. I work hard, hard work is gonna get me to heaven. That was my idol. It was working hard. I worked from before the sunrise to after sunset, seven days a week. I did it every day. And I thought, I'm, I'm being a good example to my children. I'm working hard for my wife. And when I met the Lord and I said, I'd start watching TV and I thought, I just, I need to take time off. I need to go to church. And I said, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. And so I said, Lord, this is your world and I'm your person. I'm going to take a day off a week and We'll see what happens. And every single one of those jobs that I had, I continued to do. I didn't give up one job, and yet everything got done in six days. And it Sunday, always it always works that way. You put the Lord first, your life will work out properly. You may die of cancer, but it's going to work out properly. I assure you, you you will be right with God when you put the Lord first. So, the J, JWs were, was it kind of pinched you? You know what? I'll tell you what it was. I'll tell you, it, it wasn't them. I'll tell you what it was. 
I, when I was in the store afterward, I started just to have the Christian radio on, and uh, they interviewed Marilyn McCoo from the Fifth Dimension. And she said, I had been given the gospel many times. People, they want to get the, the star saved, and, you know, they, they, they want to get the word out to him. She said, I'd heard the gospel many times, and she said it had zero effect on me. And one day, somebody opened the Bible and said, here, read this. And she said, it changed my life. And that's what happened when he said, oh, that's right here. And I... Wow. I, but mom walked in the next day and she said, what's that? I said, oh, that's the Bible. She said, where'd you get that? Well, it's a new world translation of the Job's Witness. She went out and got me the NIV, which is sitting on my desk right now, immediately. She was like, don't, don't listen to them. <laughs> anyway, so there you go. Um, uh, but 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Yes. Yes. So what does that mean that they were not Who's that? These people? Well, we're going to go through it. We we haven't gone through it yet. Oh, we're about to. No, that's all right. No, I'm just I'm just giving my my life uh, testimony or whatever you call it. We're getting into it right now. I promise. Okay, let's see here. Um, this is a most un unpopular. Let me read what I just said again, so that you know what I just said. Um, uh, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a most unpopular view in the world in which we live. It was unpopular with Charlie Garrett at the time. And it is one of the reasons why Paul is rejected by many aberrant pastors, priests, and preachers today as they utter sermons which do not consider the whole counsel of God. But his words are true, and whether we want to believe them or not is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what God has determined. And so he begins his list in this verse, and it will continue through verse 10, which you've already read. All of the following categories are termed unrighteous. That word is used for the whole list, which is then presented. It is these unrighteous who will not inherit God's kingdom. And to make sure we are clear on the subject, he interjects words of warning, do not be deceived. It is his way of saying that others may attempt to diminish, twist, or reject this truth concerning these people, but that doesn't change the truth of the matter. The term here for unrighteous was just used in verse 6-1 when speaking of those in the pagan world to whom the Corinthians were going to for their judgments. Paul is showing the illogical nature of this. Why would someone go to the unrighteous when they're not in that category? He is attempting to have them think this issue through, and so he presents his list, beginning with fornicators. This includes all sexual immorality or impurity. There is a place for sex, and it is within the confines of marriage. But there are those who reject this and exercise their sexual desires outside of those confines. Marriage, from a biblical standpoint, is between a male and a female. Within the confines of those two precepts, marriage and the union of a man and a woman, sex is okay. Idolaters. As noted in 1 Corinthians 5.10, an idolater is one who puts anything or anyone before a right relationship with God. It can be a mere devotion to, or service to idols, such as is authorized by some wayward Christian denominations. It can be realized in prayers to or through any person, such as praying to Mary or the saints. People can make almost anything into an idol. Sex, money, gems, artwork, cars, sports teams, or sports figures, and so on. Idolatry includes the unhealthy devotion to anything or anyone which causes our hearts and affections to be directed away from God. Adulterers. This concerns those who break their covenant of marriage and engage in sexual relationship. 
outside of those bonds. An adulterer can be a married person having sex with someone not their spouse, or can be an unmarried person who is having sex with a married person. From a biblical perspective, both are adulterers. Homosexuals, the Greek word here is malakoi, which indicates softness or being effeminate. This is the trademark of many homosexuals, and so it is translated that way here. But many scholars indicate that it includes a broader and darker range of sin. It is a person who is weak in their moral convictions to the point where any perversion is tolerated and accepted. Sodomites, the Greek word is arsen okoitis. It denotes a male engaging in same gender sexual activity, specifically a man in bed with another man and thus homosexuality. Paul's list will continue in the next verse. It is to these categories of unrepentant sinners that there is no hope of entering the kingdom of God. The modern argument that a person is born this way is irrelevant and it's also untrue. A person may be born with a predilection towards drinking, but this does not mean that they need to be drunk. And whether a person is born with a bent towards some type of sexual perversion, like homosexuality or not, is irrelevant. They have been instructed that this is wickedness. They alone will bear the consequences of their actions. Just because you have, are born with something does not mean that you have no control over it. Okay, I may be born wanting every woman on this planet. But that is not allowed, okay? It doesn't matter what you're born with. What matters is what God has said. And that's all that matters. That's the only thing that matters is what God has said. Everything else is irrelevant, okay? We make up excuses and we say, oh, this and oh, that. But nobody forces a person to do what they do with another person of the same gender. Nobody forces them. If God says don't do it, even if it's something they want, it's not allowed, that's all there is to it, is that God is God and we are not. Life application, whether we like what the Bible teaches on different moral issues or not, is totally beside the point. The only thing that matters is that we accept God's sovereignty and act in accord with his directives. Verse 610, you've read it, but go ahead and read it again. Okay. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Continuing with his sobering list of the unrighteous, Paul next names thieves. The meaning is clear in any society. It refers to anyone who lays hold of something which belongs to another and takes it for himself. Okay? Robbery, stealing, pickpocketing, etc. are simply different ways of describing the overall concept of thievery. And this can be on a personal, an institutional, or a governmental level. Companies can steal from their employees as much as employees can steal from their companies. Ask Amazon about that. And governments can and do steal from their citizens through unjust taxation. Those behind those schemes are not guiltless. They are thieves. Okay? That's all there is to it. There's no other way to describe them that they are thieves. Just because they're in a position where they can wield authority does not mean that they have the right to do it in the way that they do it, when they harm people in the process and profit off of it themselves, which they've passed every law in Congress so that they can go in with no money, spend four years in Congress and come out a millionaire. And they only make, what, $170,000 a year and they're supposed to pay their rent and they're supposed to pay all of their bills. And yet they come out, Nancy Pelosi's up to, I think, $170 million, but she cares about the poor, right? This is thievery 
on a governmental scale. What's that? And a fence around her house. Okay. Covetous. Coveting as described in the analysis of 1 Corinthians 5 verse 10, which we did a couple weeks ago, is desiring something, or last two weeks ago, is desiring something that someone else possesses. It is the greed of the heart which is not content with what one rightfully owns. It also doesn't consider taking the time to earn what is desired. Instead, it is a lust of the eyes for that which one has not worked for or which has been rightly received, such as a gift or an inheritance. It is an avaricious attitude which will eventually be realized in hatred, theft, murder, and so on if it is not reined in. Drunkards. These were described in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11. A drunkard is a person addicted to and consumed by alcohol, not specifically any person who drinks alcohol. A drunkard has no restraint over his drinking. He has, it has conquered him and his allegiance is to it and not to Christ. Concerning the moderate drinking of alcohol, I'm going to tell you if you disagree, which I had somebody emailing me and disagreeing with it, I sent him all of the information from it, which I've typed up on drinking in scripture. I sent it to him and he still disagrees. That's fine. Okay, it says, uh, where's my comment here? There is nothing wrong with doing so despite the stigma. I've got that written up, all of it about drinking in the Bible. If you want that, email me and I will send it to you. Many unbiblical attach to it. The entire body of scripture bears this out. However, like any other thing, there are limits which must be exercised. I'll stop right there and I'll say that his main argument, which he obviously didn't read what I sent him because... I already addressed that. His main argument was that Jesus says, I will not drink the fruit of the vine again until I come into the Father's kingdom, right? Everybody remember that? That's a misquote of what he says, but what did he tell them to do? Take and drink. Take and pass this among you. He didn't say no more drinking, new covenant. Didn't say that at all. Okay, think your issues through. There are issues that you have to think through. All right, I'm not telling anybody here to drink. I don't care if you drink. It makes no difference at all to me. That is not my life. I've got my own life and I do what I do with my own life. But if somebody tells you you cannot drink, then you need to give them what scripture says because the only thing that matters is what scripture says, okay? The only verses that you will find in scripture that are against drinking are actually two that forbid it. One is when the priests are in the holy place or in the sanctuary doing their priestly duties and that's repeated in Leviticus and in Ezekiel. And the second is the Nazarite vow. It's the only times in scripture that it's not allowed. In the book of Proverbs, which is wisdom, it speaks of getting drunk so that you wake up and you're like a uh, ship that's on the ocean and blah, 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 blah. It doesn't say don't drink. It's telling you don't go get wasted. And if you were to take what he says in Proverbs about drinking, don't look at it while it's going down and how smooth it is. And all the words, they're like choice words he's using to describe getting drunk. If you just change, and I'm not telling you to change the word of God, I'm saying take the same precept and put woman in place of wine, you're going to come up with the exact same thing. Stay away from the woman when she's looking, you know, beautiful and blah, blah, blah. It's the exact same precept, okay? And the Bible would bear it out. Don't do that because your life is going to be messed up. Or any other addiction or not addiction, any other thing that you think is okay, put it in there and just don't overdo it. Moderation is the word. Anyway, yes. Um, Hanging on. The, the bait. Yeah, the bait. That's exactly baiting yourself. Okay, that's right. Charlie, yes. In Matthew eleven nineteen. Yes. Jesus is called a gluttonous and a That's one of them that I put in there. He said because I know you can't hear him. He said in Matthew nineteen, Jesus is called a glutton and a drunkard. Okay. No, and. Just the wine bibble. 
Yeah, wine bibber, but in some translations it says a drunkard. Anyway, it would be impossible for them to call him that if they didn't see him drinking wine. It would be impossible, like being saying, yeah, you're a cokehead. Well, you can't say it unless you saw him taking coke, right? So that's one of the issues I address. Everything in the Bible fits into a picture or a pattern or a uh, theme which is developed. Everything. And if you understand what the Bible is saying, and I'm not sitting here arguing this, I'm just saying keep the Bible in context and you will avoid error. Okay? And you won't look silly when you tell somebody that you shouldn't be drinking because and you're mishandling scripture. Okay? All right, going on. Revilers. Again, as noted in 1 Corinthians 5.11, this is a person who is vulgar in his words. His speech is coarse, angry, defiant, and abusive. Such a person has no problem vilifying others in their character, hurting people's feelings through speech and demeaning those around them. Such an attitude is opposite to Christ who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. 1 Peter 2 verse 23. Next is extortioners. This final category was described in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 10. Such are those who take advantage of others for illicit gain. They may charge high rates of repayment on loans, forced payment for protection, which if not paid will end in any sort of punishment, etc. In this type, there is little consideration for others, but rather a rapacious desire to profit off anyone for any reason. The Bible now states in completely clear terms that all of these categories listed in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's easy to look at this list and say, I haven't done that, or that, or that. But in the end, all have committed at least one, and certainly more than one of each offense listed. In other words, we are all guilty and stand condemned before God. As Paul says, anybody here that says they have not coveted, you might as well walk out the door now because I know you have coveted, okay? In other words, we are all guilty and stand, stand can't condemned before God. As Paul says in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one, with one exception. He came and he was and he is. No person is justified in and of themselves before God and all people, John 3.18, are condemned already according to Jesus' own mouth. What we need to be right before God cannot be found within ourselves. Paul will keep on to keep on showing us this as he continues with his epistle. We disregard his words at our own peril. Life application, and we're still gonna answer your question. I'm just right. not there yet. I, we have to we're first there. develop we're the there. theme. That's right. Who can point a finger at one of the people on this sobering list without condemning themselves? There's nothing wrong with making right moral judgments, but there is a problem with doing so before first getting right with God through Jesus Christ. Once that occurs, we stand in a position where we can identify evil in others and lead them to the fountain of cleansing, which is Christ. Okay, and as my preacher down the road said years ago, if you point at somebody, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. Ah, Verse 611. Richard Warren? No, it was uh, Pastor uh, Pastor uh, uh, Ross. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he does too. It's a common thing, but I just first heard it from Pastor Ross. Go ahead, 611. Okay. And that is what some of you were. Here you go. Here's the answer. But you were washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were, sanctified. You were justified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Taking that verse there and adding it in with 2 Corinthians 
5 verse 19, you get the answer to the dilemma. We're going to go through that now. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19 says that we are not having our sins counted against us. God is not imputing to us our sins. Once you're in Christ, you are in Christ. He's talking about unbelievers, and he qualified it by saying, but it does not apply to Christians. Even if you do those things, which you shouldn't be doing, and you will lose rewards for it, you will not be condemned. You have inherited the kingdom of God. It is past tense, okay? So when somebody says that out of context, which happens a lot, last year I was doing a prophecy update, and I talked about somebody that says that if you teach pre-tribulation rapture, you're teaching a heresy, and according to the Bible, you can't be saved. Well, you're already saved, okay? Heresy is going to keep the next guy from being saved and has nothing to do with the pre-tribulation rapture. If it's wrong, which it's not, it would be under the category of bad doctrine, okay? But verse 611, referring to his list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul now shows the immensity of the work of Christ, even for people who have committed such acts against him as were mentioned in the previous two verses. Hence, Charlie Garrett was grateful to his very soul the day he read that and then found out what the answer to the dilemma was, which actually took reading the Bible because they had no answer, okay? And also hearing Hal Lindsey repeat it so many times that I could quote what he says. And I just used to love to watch the, watch the international intelligence briefing. You know how old that guy is? He's 90 years old. You know why he looks so young? Because he takes his mustache and puts that men, men stuff in there, keeps it brown. Yeah, yeah whatever, you know, coloring, yes. That's why he looks so young, but he's, he's an old guy. Yeah. He's on TBN. Yes, he is. And he's on TBN, and he's also got a web thing that comes out. Probably the same thing, but anyway. Yeah, Hal Lindsey, great guy. Um, just for men. Just for men. That's what I was thinking of. Thank you. Just for men. Okay, um, the immensity of the work of Christ. He begins with, and such were some of you. Actually, it's all of you, if you think it through, because we've all done something on that list. Pick from the wicked things on this list, and it may have intent, indeed applied to any of those in Corinth, and thus the same thought gives hope to such offenders today. But without understanding the nature of sin, it is hard to contemplate exactly what this means for each and every person in Christ. James says that whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Paul is talking to the most notorious offenses and taking the most notorious offenses and highlighting them. But James shows that any, any infraction of God's law breaks the entire law. And thus, we are all condemned before God. How many people here have a tzitzit on their garments today? Anybody? Does If you have a tzitzit, do you have a blue thread running in it? Well, nobody here has a tzitzit. But the law says that you have to wear tassels on the four corners of your garments. And yet, not a person in here is wearing one. And you've broken the entire law by breaking that one, that one precept. Do you know that? The entire law is broken by you not wearing tassels on the corners of your garment. The man who does these things will live by them, shall live by them. And we're not wearing tassels on our garments. We're not Jewish. Well, it doesn't matter. The law <laughs> is the law. The law is God's standard, right? That is what Christ came to redeem the people of the world from, is God's standard. He used Israel as the example. Israel had to fulfill that law perfectly. And if you broke one of those laws, James was telling his people Israel, but he's telling us as well, we are condemned already because we can't do God's standard. 
thank God for Jesus Christ. That's the point. The smallest part of the law, do not cook a goat in its mother's milk. Guess what the Arabs do? That's like their favorite thing. Take the little goat and cook it in its mother's milk. They have a name for it. It's this great, delightful thing, right? Hey, there are saved Arabs out there. I know one of them. I talked to her on the phone this morning, or actually FaceTime, right? The law is God's standard, and we can't do the law. That's the purpose of Christ's coming, okay? He goes on. Paul is taking the most notorious of offenses and highlighting them. James shows the infraction of God's law breaks the entire law, and we all are condemned before God because of this. Looking down on another for whatever their sin was must be excluded. Next, Paul says, but you were washed. Jameson Fawcett Brown says, the Greek middle voice expresses you, ye, you all, ye, the old English, ye have had yourselves washed. In other words, it wasn't you that washed. You have had yourselves washed. The tense here varies from the next two points that Paul will make. And this is not by accident. It is showing that receiving the Holy Spirit is something that must be accomplished by us through an act of faith. We receive God, the Holy Spirit washes us. We are not regenerated in order to believe. And we can get that right from Paul's verse right here. As Reformed theologians claim, that is utter nonsense. The Bible time and again shows that we must receive Christ voluntarily, and this verse shows that to be true. The pulpit commentary notes that the very object of Christ's death had been that he might cleanse us, his church, by the washing of water by the word. Therefore, receiving Jesus is not a work that merits something, but rather it is the necessary action that we must take in order to receive this gift. People are always saying, I don't believe that you have to confess Jesus with your mouth because that's a work. Well, one, that's contrary to what Paul says in the Bible, and two, it's not a work. Nobody gets married to the woman next to her and walks out without saying, I do. It doesn't happen. In the receiving of his work, we wash ourselves by the Spirit. This then leads to Paul's next two points, which say, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. The normal order of these two points is reversed. According to Paul in Romans, we are justified, and then we go through the process of sanctification. However, this is not speaking about progressive sanctification that occurs in a believer's life. Instead, it is the setting apart or consecrating of the individual to God. It is a done deal. We saw that in a previous uh, sermon a week or two ago. God's people are holy. They're God's people. He says, you are my holy people. Right? And then I went into all this great detail showing that they are not holy because they can't approach the tabernacle. And then they are not holy because they can't go inside of the tabernacle or touch or see any of the most holy things. So there are different degrees of holiness. Okay, We are sanctified, and yet we need to go through a process of sanctification. We need to be careful about theology because just because somebody says, I am sanctified for something or I am sanctified does not mean you're sanctified for everything within the church. And my example was people that do what the Bible says not to do, even though the Bible says not to do it. And they do it anyway. They're not sanctified for that type of service. In receiving of his work, we wash ourselves by the Spirit. This then leads to Paul's next two points, which say, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. As I said, that's out of the normal order. It's not speaking of progressive sanctification that occurs in a believer's life. 
It is the setting apart or consecrating of the individual to God. It is a done deal. Despite the state of maturity, all new believers are immature. And, and despite the lack of knowledge about godly things, in which most new believers are deficient, they have been set apart by God as sanctified. This is a clear indication of the doctrine of eternal salvation. What God has sanctified is forever so. Everybody got that? When you are sanctified, it is done. God has sanctified you. Now, I have given this example before. I'll give it again because it makes sense. R.C. Sproul. When he got saved, he understood that he was saved by Christ and his shed blood. And he said, man, my theology back then was completely different than what I know now. Well, obviously, he went through seminary and he went through his doctoral thing. And he went all, you know, he's been teaching all these years and his theology developed. Unfortunately, it didn't develop properly in some areas, but that's irrelevant to the conversation. When was he saved? When he first came to Christ or when he got the right doctrine? When he first came to Christ. Absolutely. Everybody get that? Sanctification, I'm talking about positional sanctification in Christ, tells you that salvation must be eternal. Because you can have the most messed up doctrine on the planet and still be saved as long as you've got the salvation message right. It's a done deal. A point of note in Paul's words is that the word Allah or but is repeated for each of these points. In this, it indicates a special emphasis on each part of the process. The words can be taken as emphatic. You have washed yourselves. You are sanctified and you are justified. And it was done in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Salvation is accomplished in the name of the Lord Jesus and by no other. Only he came in the flesh to redeem us from our sins and to purify us with his shed blood. Nobody outside of his bestowed grace can be saved. It's impossible. And the action is accomplished by the Spirit of our God, Paul says. The Holy Spirit is the one who performs the actions when a believer calls out to the Lord. The moment they do, they are sealed with the Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and are given the guarantee, guarantee, the guarantee of eternal life. It's not anything less than a guarantee, and a guarantee in the Bible means a guarantee. That's it. Salvation is eternal. Once saved, always saved. Use whatever cliche phrase you want, and if you say it's not eternal, then you are not teaching the truth of Scripture and the truth of God in Christ. Because Christ did not die on the cross to give us eternal insecurity. He did not do that. They are sanctified in Christ and they are justified in Christ. Albert Barnes notes that this verse brings in the whole subject of redemption and states in a most emphatic manner the various stages by which a sinner is saved. And by this single passage, a man may obtain all the essential knowledge of the plan of salvation. When one bears the weight of sin committed after coming to Christ and feels that they may have lost what they once received, all they need to do is return to this verse and contemplate it. It contains that wonderful assurance that we are saved despite ourselves. Life application. This verse asks us to look back on who we once were and to conduct our futures with humility gratitude, and to carry in our hearts deep thankfulness for the grace and mercy of God who took what was ignoble 
and purified it for himself. Three verses. Yes. John 15, 3. 15, 3. Clean through the word. That's, That's right. John 6, 663. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit, spirit and they are life. life. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. By one spirit, we're all baptized. This is not water. That's right. Into one body. That's right. He, he puts us in the body. So. That's right. The spirit. That's okay. absolutely right. Done deal. He yeah. put us in the body. He will not take us out of the body because then it was not a guarantee. That's right. Or if it was a guarantee, then it was a really crummy one. <laughs> 612. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Okay, this one says be brought under the power of any. In what seems a dramatic shift to another subject, Paul begins today, or this verse, all things are lawful for me. He goes on to speak about foods in another verse, and so it seems that he is referring to something newly introduced. But then he will return to the subject of sexual immorality, demonstrating that he hasn't really changed course at all. He has been speaking about this issue already and is merely taking another approach to help the issue sink in. Therefore, when he says, all things are lawful for me, it is speaking in a general sense, not literally, that all things are lawful. In other words, sex is lawful, but sexual immorality is not. He will introduce foods in order to get us to think on a different level concerning this. From his previous comments in this epistle, it is completely inescapable that committing acts of a perverse sexual nature are forbidden. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He's already shown that to be true, and so he continues, yes, all things are lawful, but all things are not helpful. In this, Paul is speaking of license. What, what are we free to do in Christ, and how can we misuse that freedom, which actually turns into bondage? And so again, he states, all things are lawful. He's emphasizing the matter to capture our full attention and to ensure that we understand what he is desperately trying to tell the Corinthians, and thus us as well, who are reading his words. Yes, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. God created sex, which we are using as an example of a general principle, and therefore it must be good, because God created it. But we can abuse what God has given to the point where it is no longer good. This takes us down several paths. Sex is normally lawful. Have a great evening. But inappropriate sex is not helpful. It is not helpful, then it is harmful. There is a destructive nature to inappropriate sex. Likewise, sex is normally lawful, but we can be brought under the power of inappropriate sex and become enslaved by it. If we are enslaved by it, we are no longer serving the master who bought us and sanctified and justified us, as was noted just in the previous verse. We are working contrary to what God intended. The penalty for this has already been noted, to be expelled from the fellowship. This concept will be built on by Paul in the verses ahead. To understand what he is saying in this verse, the words of Ellicott will provide clarity. He says, there is a verbal contrast in the Greek here which can scarcely be rendered fully in the English. The Greek words for unlawful and be brought under the power of are cognate words. What the apostle says is, all things are lawful for me, but I am not the one to allow them, therefore, to become a law over me. There is such a thing as becoming the very slave of liberty itself. 
if we sacrifice the power of choice, which is implied in the thought of liberty, we cease to be free. We are brought under the power of that which should be in our power. Well said. Understanding this, we see that being brought under the power of something other than Christ is a return to the bondage that we were under and therefore teaching, practicing, or allowing sinful license is contrary to the gospel. If it is contrary to the gospel, then it is not of the gospel and must be condemned. This is what Paul was so strict in his judgment about concerning the sexually immoral sinner in the previous chapter. And it is why the church must continue to be strict in such judgments. There is but one gospel and it must not be polluted or corrupted. Life application. Paul wrote his letter under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What he says are therefore God's words, not just his. To reject what he has written is to reject what God expects. Stand fast on the truth of the gospel and the need for purity and holiness within the church. I have a question. Yes. Uh, this next verse is going to start with two, but in the preceding, everything is permissible for me. It's in quotation marks. Yes. Why? Because that's what they wanted in their translation. Translator's preference. It's because of the stress that he gave. Remember, I was saying he said it twice as a stress. And so they're putting it in quotes because there are no quotes in Greek. There are no parentheses. There's none of that type of stuff. And translators have to decide. Let me see. Is it uh, which one was that? That's uh, 12. Hang on. But um, no, see, this one doesn't have it because they didn't think it was necessary. But what they're doing there is they're stressing it by putting it in quotes for you. Okay. From some other nope, not, nope, not at all. That's just their stressing of it. That's their way of doing that. Okay, so 13, a little more stressing here. For food for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Okay, in his usual way of making exceptionally complex complex matters easier to understand, Paul now introduces food, okay, as a way of grasping an immensely important issue of sexual immorality. However, in what is always the case, Paul's words are often twisted, okay? If we go to something I'm going to quote in what I'm putting together right now, I will quote this. Uh, I told you I'm preparing something that I need to get out for people to understand a particular issue. I will quote this, and there's a reason why I'm going to quote it, but we'll go right now to that's 1 Peter, 2 Peter, chapter 3, and then we're going to go down to uh, uh, 14 through 16. Is that where it was? Yes. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him by him in peace without spot and blameless sounds like what paul's talking about and consider that the long suffering of our lord is salvation as also our beloved brother paul according to the wisdom given to him has written you as also in all his epistles speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of scriptures. There's a reason why I'm gonna focus on that particular verse when I talk about what I'm gonna talk about because I pe want people to understand proper doctrine, okay? So one of these weeks, we're gonna take a deviation from Corinthians for something that's rather important. Anyway, um, by introducing, uh, it, okay, Paul's words are often twisted, as Peter says there, to mean something entirely different than what he intends. 
by introducing foods as an understandable baseline, he is showing that they are an indifferent matter which we participate in. Even the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Oh, no. This is a matter he will speak about in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and elsewhere. Foods affect the physical man and have no lasting value other than to sustain a person until the next meal. Have you ever noticed that when you eat and you're really full, a few hours later you're hungry again? Funny how that works. Funny how that works. The eating of foods is a morally neutral matter. Eat, eat, eat. It's morally neutral unless you abuse it. That's called gluttony, okay? God made foods and foods are for the stomach. Likewise, God created man, including his stomach. And the stomach is intended for food. In the end, both are material, non-moral, and perishing. And so God will destroy both it and them, meaning the stomach and the foods. On the other hand, there is sexual immorality. It is an entirely different category and one which cannot, despite our greatest desires and our greatest efforts to twist what he intends, be treated as we treat foods. Sexual immorality is a moral issue. It cannot be separated from this state. We cannot rationalize it away. We cannot make excuses. We cannot compare it to any other issues of a non-moral or wrongly imposed moral issue. It is wrong in and of itself. Further, though different types of sexual immorality are mentioned by Paul and others, they all fall into one overarching category and must be considered in this way. We point at one guy and say, you're doing that and you shouldn't be doing that. And we look at these guys that are doing something that's also not biblical and we, oh, we just ignore it. And yet it's all under the same category, according to scripture. Engaging in sexual immorality affects not a, affects not a merely perishing organ, but it affects the man as a whole, body and soul. Man is not granted the authority to engage in this type of act because the moral nature and effect of sexual immorality doesn't cease to affect the man at his death, like eating various foods does. Instead, it is carried with him to his judgment, be it before Christ at the Bema seat or before the Lord at the great white throne. It is an offense against God. Eating foods is not. Further, eating foods will not lead others to commit sin. Sexually, sexual immorality will. Eating foods will not turn a church from the Lord. Sexual immorality will. Foods are neutral. Sexual immorality is morally wrong. Life application, and we are done. Concerning sexual immorality, what we treat in a flippant manner or what we try to hide through a twisting of a precept or in the diminishing of the highly moral nature of such an act doesn't change the force of the offense in God's sight as the Methodists are currently in the process of doing with their uh, books of discipline and their votes. Just because we, and the uh, Episcopal Church will be doing in another couple months when they have their synod or whatever. Just because we attempt to rationalize away our moral offenses by comparing them with other non-moral or inappropriately mandated moral offenses, it in no way changes the severity of our actions. God is, in fact, God. We are his and we will stand judged by him, not excused by our attempts to undermine what he has ordained. I wish people would understand that. I wish people would hold to that and live by that. But we don't. And in this world, it is treated as the most common thing, even more common than having lunch 
and it's very sad because people will be judged before, for it because it is a moral issue. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come here and to look into your word. And I would pray for those who hear this that may be feeling a, a twinge of guilt in their heart, that that's a good thing and that they would uh, correct anything that they are doing which is incorrect and that they would align their lives with what is proper and responsible in your presence and something that will be pleasing to you and not uh, upsetting to you. And if we're not, if we're doing these things and we're not twinged in our hearts for it, then we have a problem in our minds and in our souls which needs to be fixed. And I would pray that me or anybody here that is facing that type of a dilemma would get into the word more, would pray to you for uh, conviction of their sin and that they would know that what they're doing is wrong and that they need to get it corrected. I would pray this. Even if they're saved believers, they will not be exempt from judgment at your beam of seat, Christ. And if they're not saved believers, they're not doing themselves any good by staying in the sin that they're in. But Lord, lead us to a higher path and to a higher place where we can rise above these things and we can be pleasing to you. And give us the strength to do so because these things are not easy to put behind us, whether it's uh, too much drinking or too much sex or whether it's too much gambling or whether it's anything that distracts us away from you. Help us to get our minds on you and to focus our thoughts on you and to gear our hearts towards you because you are worthy of it. You are our God and you sent Jesus to die on the cross for us, giving us the grace that we so desperately needed in our sin and in our fallen state. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our, our highest joy and our hope. Thank you for him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.